Seltzer Kings podcasts. Oh, please, Gavin, the finest forensic force in the world. Yeah? So who was Jack the Ripper? Yes. The following podcast contains... Ah, oh, the f*** you do that for? Hey, that was... Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swearwolves. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you turn the Naval Criminal Investigative Service into some CIA FBI super agency, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe. This is episode number 355. We'll always have Lenny Briscoe edition of the show. It's the finale of Copaganda, where we talk about how Hollywood created the myth of police infallibility. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Fast Eddie's Expert Witnesses. You got a case? We got an expert to fit any budget. From fiber analysis to bite marks, from trace DNA to tool mark matching, our experts will testify to whatever it is you want to prove in court. Our staff are all highly trained forensic scientists who've watched every episode of Forensic Files ever made. Need some burn patterns examined? We can do that. Got some blood spatter you want looked at? Sure, we got that too. Our staff will take a look at them and testify in court that they're exactly whatever it is you think they should prove for your case. Worried we won't be allowed to testify because we basically are just making shit up? Don't be. That's exactly what the big budget guys are doing, so why pay more? Fast Eddie's expert witnesses. They're experts because you say they are. And that's all that matters in court. What if we were to enlarge this part of the photo? Not the face, just this part of the window. Are you thinking of the reflection? I'm wondering if maybe we can see the kidnapper's face in that side view mirror. It's worth a shot. I need to see a few photo tech up here now. Yes, I'll continue to hold. Detective, enhanced and enlarged. Thank you. The enhancement only increased the pixelation on all these. You can't even see there's a side view mirror. It's not like on 24 Castle. In the real world, zoom and enhance can only get us so far. You can't even, there's no reflection, it's just mush. I did 15 years in one facet of law enforcement or another. And you know what? And all that time, I never once dusted a scene for Prince. Oh, Cousin, you must be so disappointed. I am. I mean, I took crime scene photos, I tagged and bagged evidence, sketched accident scenes, and one time I chased a guy down a dark alley shouting that he'd better stop or I'd shoot. Though, to be fair, that wasn't on the job. That was during a water gun fight. Oh, you're so heroic. Just doing my job, ma'am. Just doing my job. But I never even came close to dusting for fingerprints. Television taught me the cops were dusting prints all the fucking time, just sprinkling little powder all over shit and using those little brushes to reveal the telltale marks the criminal left behind. But like everything else TV taught me about being a cop, it was just another big fat lie. Also, and you know what, this still bothers me today. You always see cops with these expensive cameras taking photos of the crime scene. That's some real bullshit right there. Do you know what we use for crime scene photos? A goddamn Polaroid. Yeah, the same silly cheap thing your dad used to take pictures of your mom's tits back in the day. That was a high-end investigative tool right there, I guess. 
Now, look, I love a good Polaroid, particularly if it's pictures of your mom's tits, but you aren't going to get any kind of detail from a Polaroid snap. So you aren't gathering information from the scene that is going to solve any kind of crimes. It's snapshots just to prove that you were there. This one is Dave by the body. Oh, Dave, you had your eyes closed. Say what you will about the charms of analog photography, of which I am a fan but no one slapping a Polaroid onto an enlarger and gleaning details missed on the first walkthrough of the crime scene. There's a reason why real police investigations used crime scene photographers, which for a hot minute I thought I might be one after I stopped being a cop. But then I realized that my entire life would be walking around taking tasteful, well-lit photos of blood-spattered walls and dead people, which uh, I suspected might not have been great for my mental health. Assuming you're still sane, that is. That's a pretty big assumption, really. When we left off last week, we had come to the end of the 1980s and we're starting the 90s. Police procedural shows we are experiencing yet another shift in how cops were portrayed in the media. This is a reflection of some real issues going on in the cultural zeitgeist. Mainly, Americans were sick and tired of all this crime. Crime news can look a lot like entertainment. Join the early shift at 6.30 and the late shift at 11. Cops twice a night. The dark black uh, is crime coverage. One Los Angeles station, a study showed, spent over half its newscasts on crime. Others came close. Now checking our nightly tally of gun-related deaths. One broadcasts a body count. 500 people have been killed by guns. That could be construed as uh, a way of making the community aware in the way of the, the Iran hostage crisis. It's also a way, I think, of kind of tweaking people's fear on a nightly basis. By 1990, Americans had lived through a massive crime spike for decades and were sick and tired of it. Now we have this new thing called crack raging through the cities and everyone was convinced if something wasn't done, then everyone everywhere was going to be raped in their, and murdered in their beds as soon as that night. This wasn't true, but that never stopped television and television news in particular from saying that it was. So it stands to reason that television cop shows would begin to reflect a more grateful attitude towards the boys in blue and that really began with this right here Law and Order took the basic dragnet model, expanded it to include the prosecutors in courts, and cast a delightful curmudgeon of a character to represent the everyman cop in the form of one Leonard W. Briscoe. That's disturbing. I don't know. We've seen worse. No, that. $378 plus tax a month? Like I always say, parking in this city will kill you. Thomas Reddick, Pavilion Publishing, CEO. Looks like they publish a string of magazines, news, fashion. Well, he's on the other side of the camera now. He's on the other side, period. I also found this in the living room. Matches is set in the closet. The blood's all smeared. Doesn't look like we're going to get any usable prints. Free weight. More like dead weight. Briscoe was played by beloved character actor Jerry Orbach. And New York City fucking loves Briscoe and Jerry Orbach. Orbach is literally a New York City landmark. 
In 2003, the New York City Conservancy, the organization charged with identifying and protecting historical sites and buildings in the city, named Orbach and his co-star Sam Waterston as living landmarks for their contribution to the culture of the city. And after Orbach's death in 2004, Dude donated his eyes so that the blind could receive his corneas and have their sight restored. To this very day, Jerry is memorialized on subway cars, urging other New Yorkers to do the same. Liddy Briscoe was and is the most beloved New York City cop that never existed. Law & Order premiered in September of 1990 with a very simple premise. Take a case loosely based on a headline crime and fictionalize it. To the point that when there is a big murder in New York City, someone will inevitably be jealous that the dead person finally made it. I can't believe he's going to be on Law & Order. This isn't even mentioning how many actors got their start playing a bit part on Law & Order. Entire Hollywood careers have began with a memorable casting as a murderer. And the show is a spin-off machine. Six American television series, Law & Order Special Victims Unit, Law & Order Criminal Intent, Law & Order Trial by Jury, Law & Order Los Angeles, Law & Order True Crime, and Law & Order Organized Crime, as well as a television film, Exiled, a Law & Order movie, in which Detective Mike Logan, played by Mr. Big from Sex in the City, is exiled to Staten Island. Which you would know if you had ever spent any time on Staten Island is considered a cruel and unusual punishment under the Constitution. The show, What a and is consistently named one of the best television shows of all time. Those are awards and recognition it deserves. And while Law & Order isn't highbrow entertainment, it consistently featured good writing, strong acting, and an uncanny ability to tap into the cultural moment of for over three decades. There is a one tiny little problem, however. Yeah. It's all propaganda. Yeah. Law & Order has uh, never been what one could call nuanced in how it portrays the criminal justice system is Dragnet for the modern era. The ties to the NYPD aren't so blatant as Dragnets were, but the show has always treated the NYPD very gently when it comes to how they show the department. When there are critiques of the department, it's the bureaucracy or the top brass. The guys on the street are inevitably shown as tough, hardworking, honorable folks doing their best work in a system that seems to want to do everything it can to make their jobs harder because, God forbid, a criminal's civil rights get violated or something. What a bunch of babies. Olayimi Aluren, a public defender in New York City, wrote in Teen Vogue, which has for some unexplained reason actually become a legit bastion of solid journalism, in December of last year, quote, we are taught to fear and dislike the people caught in the crossfires of the criminal legal system rather than fear the system that inflicts pain on them. We are taught that there are bad people who are just born bad and do bad things and that the only way to keep the good people safe is for police to do whatever they can to lock the bad people away. This is why Law & Order has run for over 30 years, showing all manner of police violence, coarse confessions, and blatant violations of the law and suspects' rights. People not only watch faithfully, but root for the police and the prosecutor. Many episodes tell you a story about an evil person doing evil things for evil's sake. The morally bankrupt defense attorney representing them and the heroic police and prosecutor who must stop them. So when a detective does happen to beat someone to a pulp or coerce a confession, viewers see it as a necessary evil or at least justified. We need to move away from the law and order mindset, which taught us to root for the prosecutors and despise defendants, to assume that anyone accused of the crime is guilty, to see that those who break the law as evil are cruel rather than victims of circumstances created by society that accept as poverty and inequality, unquote. Now, I'm assuming most of you listening to this are like, I, I didn't see any of that in law and order. 
Well, I'm assuming also most of you, are, you're very, very white, just like I am. But I think if you ask a person of color, they would probably have a slightly different interpretation on what they see on the TV screen. Throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s, cop shows stayed pretty clearly in the cop-friendly lane as the crime rates dropped precipitously. Homicide Life on the Street, David Simon's first Baltimore cop show, an amazing show, but it was still basically a darker, grittier version of Law & Order. NYPD Blue was basically Law & Order with a few gentle swears and Dennis Franz's naked ass. Still the most traumatizing moment in cop show history in the history of cop shows. I did not want to see that. 1999's third watch was Adam 12, an emergency updated for the new millennium. And then finally, David Simon's second cop show, a groundbreaking television show in every way, shape, and form came along. The Wire. I've said it before, and I'm saying it again here. I recognized in The Wire what my life would have become if I'd have stayed in law enforcement. You're an asshole, McNulty. What the fuck did I do? I am Jimmy McNulty, only on a smaller scale. And you know what? That makes me wildly unsuitable police work, which in fairness, so was Jimmy McNulty. The wire stripped away the veneer of polite society and showed cops for what they were. Frequently drunk, often angry, sometimes violent. They were shitty spouses, and they got away with it all because cops don't rat on other cops. The wire ought to have exposed cops for the big lie of copaganda, and yet somehow still made them out to be big fucking heroes because that is the power of copaganda. And I want to be clear, this is not some grand nefarious conspiracy by the government to indoctrinate Americans, at least not anymore. Not since J. Edgar Hoover went to that big closet in the sky, because the people writing these shows are hardly red-hatted, Blue Lives Matter flag-waving, dyed-in-the-wool conservatives. They would vehemently deny they have anything to do with that kind of mindset. Jamie, you're not liberal. I no. am liberal. They are writing these shows because the viewers expect to see these characters like they are written, because those are the kind of shows they've seen all their lives. No one even really questioned this until Black Lives Matter movements came along, and particularly the death of George Floyd shook peoples to the core of their preconceptions that maybe we had just a little too much policing in this country for about a minute and a half because once the marching stopped, white people went right back to watching Law & Order and cheering for the cops, and the news began to run nonstop stories about how crime was on the rise. Tom, crime is up. Wow, how high? Not as much as the news wants you to think it is, but is up a little bit. And in the extremely unlikely event you have stumbled onto the show and are currently hate listening for the first time to this pinko commie libtard disrespect the brave men and women who wear the badge, if you are, welcome to the show. Don't forget to leave a five-star review on how much you hate me so other people can listen and hate me just as much as you do. And here comes the veiled death threat. Just remember, all death threats should be addressed to producergavin at gmail.com. But my red-hatted wearing friends, what if I told you that all of this cop worship is also detrimental to law enforcement itself? Liar! No. You are a liar. No. I could see why you would think that, but it remains true that unrealistic expectations of police work on television also make being an actual cop that much harder. Let me ask you, when was the last time you watched a television show where the cops didn't catch the bad guy, especially if it was a murder? 
<laughs> yeah, you already know the answer because of television. You believe that cops always catch the perp. Would you like to know the national clearance rate for crimes from 2020, according to the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Statistics? In reality, if you or someone you love is killed in a crime, someone is charged for that crime 54% of the time. Seems kind of low. It does. Think about that. There were 21,000 570 murders in the United States in 2020. 11,647 people were charged with those murders, meaning 10,103 murders are unsolved and the murderers are walking around right now. Or if you wanted to look at it from another way, if you really, really hate someone and you want to murder them, you've got about a 46% chance of getting away with it. I'll need a list of names and locations. The other closure rates are worse. Aggravated assault, 46% of the time they're closed. Rape, 30% of the time someone is charged with the rape that was committed. Property crimes, 14% are solved. And vehicle thefts, 12% of those crimes are solved in 2020. Hey, man. Are you going to find these guys or, you know, I mean, you got any promising uh, uh, leads or leads? Yeah, sure. I'll uh, just check with the boys down at the crime lab. They uh, got uh, four more detectives working on the case. They got us working in shifts. Leads. And I'm not saying that to cop bash. I'm speaking from experience when I say that unless you catch someone in the act of committing a crime, it's really, really difficult to figure out who committed that crime. Well, no, that's not exactly true because in reality, the victim and the investigator usually have a pretty good idea of who did it. And I thought like the butler always did it. Well, no, but kind of, because when it comes to crimes of violence, it's almost always the spouse or significant other. But knowing that and proving that in court are two very different things. Just ask O.J. Simpson. But wait, I hear you saying, what about DNA or fingerprints or forensics, Dave? I mean, on the shows, they always figure out who did the crime by... Some shit Abby does down in the lab. Uh, Get that down to the lab. Well, you see, you only think that because of yet another television show with a different kind of copaganda. A copaganda of police infallibility. And it all began with this show right here. Not the band The Who, but the show CSI and its spin-offs and rip-offs. Fucking FBI, the CIA, CSI, NCIS. The year 2000 brought us this new take on the venerable cop show featuring not the detectives or the beat cops, 
but the crime scene investigators and lab monkeys behind the scenes processing all the evidence and solving crimes like a motherfucker out there in Las Vegas. From the show's Wikipedia page, quote, mixing deduction and character-driven drama, CSI Crime Scene Investigation follows a team of crime scene investigators employed by the Las Vegas Police Department as they use physical evidence to solve murders. The team is originally led by Gil Grissom, a socially awkward forensic entomologist and career criminalist who's promoted to CSI supervisor following the death of trainee investigator. Grissom's second-in-command, Catherine Willows, is a single mother with a cop's instinct. Born and raised in Las Vegas, Catherine was a stripper before being recruited into law enforcement and trained as a blood spatter specialist, unquote. Not to disrespect strippers or anything, but... Uh, that's a hell of a career move right there. CSI was the first post-computer revolution cop show, and it portrayed a world where using science and modern technology, no crime could ever go unsolved. DNA was featured as the modern marvel of the ages for solving crime, and together with various techno-jargon sciences, the valiant crew of the crime scene investigators used every piece of tech, along with their razor-shot Holmesian deductive skills to chase and catch the bad guy. There was, uh, you know, only just one problem with this premise. It was all bullshit! Oh, yeah, I mean, even by television standards, this is some major bullshit right there. First of all, let me explain to you the real life of a crime scene investigator. To begin, evidence techs do not investigate crimes. Detectives do. They don't question witnesses, and most of them aren't even armed. No CSI tech has ever chased a guy down a dark alley yelling stop or I'll shoot unless, like me, they were in a water gun fight. Second, the vast majority of their work is extraordinarily unglamorous. The overwhelming majority of crime CSIs are called to a property crime, so their job is to take photos of the scene, maybe dust for fingerprints, and then document what was stolen. That sounds really boring. That's only because it is. And if you are called out to a shooting or a murder, boring becomes disgusting really fucking quick. Or bloods and brains and all of it's fresh if you're lucky. Imagine spending eight hours processing a crime scene in the late summer heat of Las Vegas with a very decomposed body still in the room. And if the body's not in the room, the smell certainly is. And you will be lucky if it only takes you eight hours. TV makes CSI look like a quick search, a couple of photos and some swabbing of stuff, brush up some prints and head back to the lab. <laughs> You're there and you've documented every inch of that crime scene for blood, semen, touch, DNA, dusted every inch of the place for fingerprints, photographed and sketched everything because if you don't, you're gonna get torn apart in court. And then and only then can you take this mountain of junk you gathered up back not to the lab, but to the evidence lockup where you will spend the next few hours logging it all in to make sure it is safely stored away. And after you're finished with that, you get to write an extensive report on what you saw, what you did, and what you collected. Then, maybe you can go home for the night, unless, of course, if the department is short-staffed on CSI techs, which they always are, so you'll probably get to go right back out and do it for another shift all over again. All of which sounds positively exhausting to me. Oh, yeah. 
It is. Oh, yeah. And all that business about putting your evidence under mass spectrometers and microscopes and shit for analysis. <laughs> yeah, that's not your job. That's the lab monkey's job. Chances are you will never see that evidence again until if and when you go to court on that case, which again is only about 54% of the time. TV lied, man. Yeah, so many a young CSI tech learned the hard way. A real life CSI would not make for a very good television show. But that fake-ass TV show, people loved it, and it rapidly became a hit. It law and ordered a bunch of spinoffs and changed yet again how American public thought about law enforcement. Only this time, the myth of cop infallibility was working against the system, which is ironic to the point it needs a song that doesn't describe irony remotely correctly made about it. In fact, CSI and the slew of forensic shows that followed it did then and still does make investigating and prosecuting crimes more difficult to the point that the problem even has its own name, the CSI effect. From a USA Today article in 2004, that's four years after the show debuted, mind you. Quote, to legal analysts, his case seemed an example of how shows such as CSI are affecting actions in courthouses across the USA by, among other things, raising jurors' expectations of what prosecutors should produce at trial. Prosecutors, defense lawyers, and judges call it the CSI effect after the crime scene shows that are among the hottest attractions on television. The shows CSI and CSI Miami in particular feature high-tech labs and glib and gorgeous techies. By shining a glamorous light on a gory profession, the programs have also helped draw more students into forensic studies. But the programs also foster what analysts say is the mistaken notion that criminal, criminal science is fast, infallible, and always gets its man. That's affecting the way lawyers prepare their cases as well as at the expectations that police and the public place on real crime labs. Real crime scene investigators say that because of the programs, people often have unrealistic ideas of what criminal sciences can deliver, unquote. Expert opinions differ on whether or not the effect is real, meaning it influences jury decisions at trials. Different studies say different things, but in practical applications, cops and lawyers believe it's true, which means they are going to want to use more and more forensics, and there is an even bigger problem when they do this, because a lot of forensic science is, well, uh... It's not science. Yeah, CSI and all these other forensic shows literally made people believe that you can look at bite marks on a dead body and match that to a set of teeth. You can't. And they don't. But you know, they will testify they did in court because you watch these dumb shows, you will probably believe them. But that's a totally different show, and I'm not doing a four-parter on this topic because I am tired of talking about it. I'm not saying you're a bad person if you binge watch Law & Order reruns or think Marg Helgenberger is milfy hot in her CSI vest. All I'm saying is for decades, how we think about law enforcement is almost entirely framed by what we see on television. Hell, the guy who wrote a song called Cop Killer in the 90s now plays a cop on a Law & Order spinoff. And if that doesn't drive my point home about copaganda, I, I don't know what will. We live in a world where we do need police. Maybe not as many police or as vigorously policing as we have, 
But we do need someone out there to keep bad people from doing bad things and to try and find those bad people when they do. We also got to have more realistic expectations about the job of being a cop because in the end, it is just a job. You're not a hero if you wear a badge. I should know. I wore one for 15 years and the most heroic thing I ever did had nothing to do with crime. It was finding a teenager who ran away to commit suicide before she actually died. That's not crime fighting. That's public service. And public service rarely makes for good television shows. I liked being a cop. I was good at it. But I didn't like how it was making me feel as though the very people I was supposed to be protecting and serving, just like it says on the cars, were being turned into the enemy by the other cops I work with. Because when something like that happens, we get the kind of cops who kneel on a man's neck for 10 minutes while he slowly dies. And it got to that point because we had all forgotten that the cops we see on television aren't real cops and the deaths we see on television aren't real deaths. Making cops into untouchable heroes doesn't make them Phil Fish or Lenny Briscoe. It turns them into Derek Chauvin's. And Derek Chauvin's shenanigans are not cheeky and fun. They're not even really shenanigans at all. They're more like evil shenanigans. Jesus fucking Christ, did I just make a Super Troopers reference in the same sentence that I mentioned Derek Chauvin? I have really got to get off this topic. <laughs> that is it for our show this week and for this series. Thank you, God. I will tell you what I learned after doing all this research for this show. First, I'd forgotten how great Barney Miller was. And second, some topics are really too big for a podcast like this. I do a fairly decent job researching simple stuff like the backstory of malls or breakfast cereals. But doing research on a serious social issue like policing America is not nearly as much fun as, say, learning about that time Garth Brooks thought he was Chris Gaines. So next week... We are back to something much lighter and much sillier, even though a lot of times this show was way too silly for the very serious topic we were talking about. Oh, I'm sorry. That was totes and approves. Speaking of totes and approves, rate and review this show so that others listen and realize how wildly inappropriate your podcast recommendations are. If you would like to support the show and all of our wildly optimistic show topics, kick a dollar on patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. That way, uh, that money can go to my drinking enough that I firmly believe that I have a valid opinion on serious social issues. Do all of the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closer. Otherwise, he will have the boys down at the podcast lab. Start digging into your background and discover that one time you gave a five star of the Joe Rogan experience because you thought he was funny on news radio. And so for me, Dave, from my heart and from my hands, I don't know why people don't understand. Bledsoe, producer... We are making things I've never seen before behind bolted doors. Is, is this a Nazi reference? I don't understand. It's, it's all very droll and unsubstantiated to me. Gavin and all the fictional lab monkeys on the show, we want to say, if you're asking if your bits of creation are real and you're talking about evidence from a crime scene, you're wrong and you need to find another job. We'll see you all next week. 
What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Jim tricked me into thinking I'd want a walk-on part on NCIS, but... Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.